If you are a cinema goer, or uh, if you just read the film reviews in the newspapers, you might well have become familiar over the last couple of years with the name of Terence Malick. Malick has an Oxford connection because he came here as a Rhodes Scholar in the mid-1960s to study philosophy under Gilbert Ryle. Ryle and he did not get along, so Malick left without completing his doctorate. In the early 70s, he returned to, to the United States, uh, where he first of all taught philosophy and composed what remains the standard English translation of one of the works of uh, Martin Heidegger. He then became a film director, which not many philosophers do. And since then, uh, he has produced a string of extraordinary films, uh, most recently, uh, one released last year called To the Wonder. But the Malik film that I want to talk about this evening is one that first appeared uh, 15 years ago, as it happens in the uh, summer I was about to leave Oriel. And its title is The Thin Red Line. This is an extraordinary film in a number of respects. For one thing, its title is a mystery, lacking any discernible connection with its content. I should know, I've seen it ten times, <laughs> and I've skim-read the book in which it's loosely based. But the most extraordinary thing about The Thin Red Line is that it is one of the most religious, and I think one of the most Christian films ever made, or at least that I've ever seen. Released in 1999, shortly after Saving Private Ryan, it was released in 1999, shortly after Saving Private Ryan, but unlike Private Ryan, it was a box office failure in the USA. One could say that this is because it isn't patriotic, and that would be true, but it doesn't quite hit the mark. It isn't so much that the Thin Red Line is anti-patriotic as that it operates at a different, deeper, more existential level altogether. Its concern is more metaphysics than politics, and it asks questions that undermine cosy, reassuring, this-worldly assumptions. It's far more profound, and therefore far more disturbing, and cinema audiences in general do not like to be really disturbed. Whereas Saving Private Ryan is set in the early days of the Normandy landings in 1944, the Thin Red Line tells a story about the grueling struggle of American troops to wrest the Pacific island of Guadalcanal from the Japanese in 1942. But it's not a conventional war story at all, because it uses the experience of war to raise deep questions about the nature of human destiny about what our prospects as human beings are, ultimately speaking, and in the light of that, about the meaning of human existence. So the focus of the, of the Thin Red Line is not really the conventional one of the exploits of particular characters and their relationships. It is rather the solitary spiritual struggle of individuals and the different ways in which the different men respond to the extreme ambiguity of human existence.
to its bizarre combination of breathtaking beauty on the one hand and heart-stopping horror on the other. At the film's centre is an ongoing conversation, or rather a philosophical debate, between two characters, Sergeant Welsh, played by Sean Penn, and Private Wit, played by Jim Casaville. Welsh responds to the horror of war around him by trying to harden himself with cynicism. In this world, he tells Wit, a man is nothing, and there ain't no world but this one. We're living in a world that is blowing itself to hell as fast as everybody can arrange it. In a situation like this, all a man can do is shut his eyes and let nothing touch him. Look out for himself. But Private Wit resists this option. He is captivated by the memory of the serenity with which his own mother faced her death, a serenity in which he believes he's seen the key to immortality, and he refuses to permit the arbitrary horrors of war to eclipse the equal fact of profound beauty in the world, the beauty of nature, of good people, and of happy social life. You're wrong, he says to Welsh. I've seen another world. But this is really only the surface of his answer. Indeed, on most occasions, Wit meets Welsh's cynical questions with silence. The real substance of his response is practical rather than verbal. His real answer is his refusal to harden himself, his persistence in caring for those around him, in gazing with compassion upon the agonised faces of comrades dying in his arms, in letting himself feel the pain and the awful tragedy, in remaining vulnerable. In the end, Wit himself is killed as he deliberately draws the enemy away from a wounded comrade. Greater love hath no man. And Welsh, later crouching at his graveside, asks, Where's your spark now? That is, what does the hope that enlightened you add up to now? But everything hangs on the tone here. Is it the mocking voice of triumphant cynicism? Where's your spark now? Or is it a genuinely open, quizzical, where's your spark now? My own judgment is that it edges toward the latter. Partly because Welsh, in spite of the all too evident cheapness of human life around him, just can't stop himself caring and therefore can't stop himself yearning for something beyond mortality. The last words he speaks in the film, uttered in the privacy of his own soul, are these. If I never meet you in this life, let me feel the lack. A glance from your eye, and my life will be yours. Who is he speaking to? It can't be Wit himself, because Wit he certainly has met. It seems to be rather the source of Wit's hope, the original fire of Wit's frail but vital spark. Sergeant Welsh is praying. 
If I never meet you in this life, let me feel at least the lack. A glance from your eye, and my life will be yours. One of the reasons that The Thin Red Line is such a very persuasive, compelling film, I think, is that it offers no clean and easy resolution of the ambiguity of things. As one character puts it, one man looks at a dying bird and thinks there's nothing but unanswered pain, but death's got the final word, laughing at him. Another man sees the same bird and feels the glory, feels something smiling through it. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the thin red line does venture a statement, implicit but nonetheless definite. Or maybe it would be better to say that the film shows us a sign. The sign that it shows is the face of wit, vulnerable, compassionate, gentle, but not at all weak, most of all, not afraid of death. A shining face, a face of arresting beauty, so beautiful, in fact, that to call it the face of a fool would be an act of sacrilege. But if it's not the face of a fool, and it's not the face of an immortal, then what is it? I think the film presses us to see it as a sign of what it calls glory. Glory here is not the same as in Saving Private Ryan. There, the suffering and death of soldiers is justified, is given this worldly meaning by the service of the ideals of liberal democracy, represented at the beginning and end of the film by the wind-blown flag of the United States. One of its nicknames, you may remember, is Old Glory. The Thin Red Line, however, thinks that human suffering needs a glory far bigger than that for, it just, for its justification. Here, in the Thin Red Line, Glory clearly lies far beyond the nation and political ideology, however noble, and indeed beyond the world of time and space altogether. Glory here speaks of that time and place where human life flourishes free from the secular ravages of war, betrayal and disease. This glory does have its moments of presence in the world. The thin red line opens on an island in the South Pacific in a village where children play where adults smile and laugh, and where the whole village sings hymns in perfect harmony. And if you listen carefully and you know your music, you'll notice that the music accompanying this scene is in fact forays in paradisum. That's one form of the presence of glory. Another is Private Bell's reveries of his beautiful young wife, of their lovemaking, and of her awaiting his return back home, reveries that sustain Bell as he risks his life in battle. And then there's the shining face of Wit himself. But all of these moments of glory are shown by the film to be vulnerable, ephemeral, mortal. The village is struck down with strife and disease. Bell is stunned by a letter from his wife, announcing that she's leaving him for another man. And Wit, as I've said, is killed. So the question arises, are these moments of glory merely illusions masking a basically brutal reality? Or are they signs of a reality far deeper, more enduring, than any of the brutal things that life can throw at us? What's more basic, the horror or the glory? 
There are no certainties here, no proofs one way or another, and the thin red line is wise not to pretend that there are. Nevertheless, it gives us a reason, I think, to bet on signs rather than illusions. What's the reason? It's the sheer commanding beauty of the faces of those, like Private Wit, who trust and hope that the fragments of glory in the world, fragments of beauty, fragments of love, fragments of joy, are better clues to the origin and destiny of things than the forces of destruction. What the Thin Red Line has to say seems to me very close indeed to the heart of Christian faith. First of all, it says that what's good in the world is more real, more basic than what's brutal. What's good in the world is not an illusion, but a sign of the glory that lies on the far shores of suffering and death. Second, it says that there is a connection between, between hope and compassion, a two-way connection. On the one hand, from hope to compassion, in that those who are hopeful are prevented from the cynicism that hardens and kept open for compassion. But on the other hand, there's also a movement from compassion to hope, in that those who dare to care for what's vulnerable and perishable, as all worthwhile things in the world are, find themselves moved to hope, to yearn for the glory that surpasses this world. Even Sergeant Welsh, despite all his cynicism, just can't help himself from praying. If I never meet you in this world, let me at least feel the lack. The thin red line graphically expresses the heart of the Christian vision of things, and its meaning can therefore be happily married with what St. Paul was saying in our second reading this evening. Who shall separate us from the love of God that has been shown us in Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress, or bullet, or disease, or social strife, or betrayal by our closest friends, or any other kind of injury that lacks redress in history? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God, shining in the face of Jesus, who was full of faith and hope and compassion, and who was raised from the dead. <laughs>